biblical Christianity is not a religion. It's a personal relationship with the living God. Let me say that again. Biblical Christianity is not a religion. It's a personal relationship with the living God. Now, when I use the word religion there, I don't mean the simple use of the word. The simple definition of religion is a way to practice your faith. And the Bible uses the word religion in that sense. Over in James 1 verse 27, the Bible says that true religion is taking care of orphans and widows and remaining undefiled from the world. And so religion there is is just a way to practice your faith. But when I say that biblical Christianity is not a religion, I'm using religion in this sense. I'm defining religion as an attempt to earn your way to salvation through your adherence to practices, rituals, and or moral behavior. And Christianity is not that. Christianity is not an attempt to earn your salvation. Those that know Christ know they're not good enough to earn their salvation. So biblical Christianity is not a religion, it's It's a personal relationship with the living God. And we're going to see that emphasis in our text this morning. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. As we talk about what it means to be adopted. What it means to be adopted. Have a relationship with God. Galatians chapter 4, we will begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Thank you, Travis, and praise band and choir. What a powerful morning of music. Amen? Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, here it is, adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you today in the strong and precious name of Jesus. 
We come into your presence, Lord, with boldness, with confidence that because of the finished work of your Son, because of the righteousness that your Son has given us as a gift that we are clothed in, we come, Lord, confident that we are heard when we pray. And Lord, we pray today that you would move in our midst, that you would touch hearts and change lives. You would, by your Spirit, help us to understand the import and the implications of adoption. And help us to leave this place changed. Help us to leave today knowing we have met with the living God. Help us to leave today understanding just a little bit more how incredible it is that biblical Christianity is about a relationship with the living God. So Lord, have your way in our midst as we lift up the the name of Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've journeyed our way through Galatians, we've seen how Paul was walking the churches in Galatia through the, the glories of the gospel. And last week we saw how Paul... Uh, contrasted the law that God gave Israel uh, with the promise that God gave Abraham. We contrasted the difference between the two. We saw last week at the end of chapter 3 that the law that God gave Israel, the moral law that still applies today, helps us to see our condition, but the promise, which is salvation in Christ, saves us from our condition. We talked about the difference between the two and As we step into chapter 4, Paul wants to continue exploring that theme of what it means to be a son of God. Because he mentioned it there in verse 26 of chapter 3 when he says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So he's going to kind of drill down on that a bit and help us understand what it means to be adopted, what it means to be a son of God. And, And very simply in this passage this morning, we see a contrast between two realities. The first is that of slaves. Slaves. In this passage, we see a contrast between slaves, and I'll give you the second uh, in a few moments. But he wants us to understand what it means to be slaves. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Now, here's what you need to understand about being a slave. Religion... The definition I gave you earlier, uh, an attempt to earn your way to salvation, religion enslaves. And you need to understand that. Understand how glorious adoption is. You need to understand that religion, trying to earn your salvation through adherence to principles or ritual, is enslaving. That's what he means there in verse 1. He says, A child is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, he's talking about the idea of a guardian, which we talked about last week. Uh, A family would often use a slave or hire someone to train their children, to teach their children, to keep their children safe and point them in the right direction. But we saw last week that a guardian could not change the children's hearts. They could just give them some instruction and, and discipline them when they were wrong. And a guardian could not give the child their inheritance. Only the father could do that. 
And so he's saying here, back to that same illustration, that a, a child, before they experience their inheritance, are really like slaves. They, they, they can't take hold of that which God has for them. And he compares this status to religion in verse 3 when he says, when we were children in the same way, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now we need to talk for a few moments about that phrase, elementary principles of this world, stoicheion in the Greek language. What does that mean? What is the elementary principles of this world, uh, what do they consist of? Well, the Greek word translated elementary principles was used to speak of the basic elements of something. It was used to refer to the letters of the alphabet. It would be like us saying the ABCs. Uh, it was used for the notes of a musical scale or the propositions of geometry. And so the word stoicheion was, to, was mentioned uh, or used to speak of the, the basics of some discipline or practice. Just the basics, the ABCs of something. But in ancient Greece, this word also meant the elementary spirits of the universe. You'll see there, uh, maybe in your notes, in your Bible that this, this phrase, elementary principles, uh, uh, could be translated elementary spirits. There's a footnote in my translation of God's Word. And, and the Greeks believed that the spirits of the universe, earth, fire, air, and water, uh, were associated with their gods. And so many of the pagan worshipers associated the elemental spirits, the, the elemental um, uh, realities, the earth, fire, uh, air, and water with their worship of their pagan gods. And in Paul's time, the first century, the view had expanded to the point in which stoicheia also referred to the sun, moon, stars, and planets. All of them in the Greek mindset, in the Roman mindset, associated with gods or goddesses. Now in Paul's mind, these false gods that people worshipped in concert with the elements uh, the, the, the basic elements of creation, uh, were demons. And so in this passage, he is thinking of the demonic bondage in which the Galatians had been held to prior to the proclamation of the gospel. Now this is clear by the phrase, look at there in verse 4, uh, in verse 3, when it says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles, look at this next phrase, of the world, of the world. These aren't godly principles, these are worldly principles. These are worldly elements that were tied into the pagan gods or goddesses. And Paul saw that as demonic. And this is made more clear in verses 8 through 10. Look what it says in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles, there it is, of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So here's what he's saying. If you go back as, uh, as uh, Galatians, if you go back to trying to earn your salvation, it's just like your pagan days. It's just religion. Even if it's Judaism you're trying to practice, if you think that the practice of Judaism, circumcision and Sabbath and festivals and feasts, if you think that makes you right with God, it's just like your pagan days where you were trying to do something to earn your salvation. And so here's the, the summary of that statement, the elementary principles of the world. If you believe that morality, listen, is the way to salvation... You have bought into the doctrine of demons. 
That's what he means by the elementary spirits of the world. Going back to those who are by nature not gods, they're demons. And, and if you believe that your goodness can save you, you have bought into demonic teaching. And, and, and trust me, the, the demons teach. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he mentions the doctrine of demons. The doctrine of demons. Now, you may have walked in here and thought that you're not influenced by demons. But if you believe your goodness can earn your ticket to heaven, you're influenced by demons. My last church, I was, I was uh, walked, walked outside one day and there was a gentleman there uh, performing some service for the church. I think he was replacing our water bottles or something like that. And I began to talk to this, this gentleman, he's a young guy. And I began to share the gospel with him. And I asked him the question, uh, if you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? He said, well, I think so. I said, well, if you were standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Here's what he said. He said, I would tell God that I would give somebody the shirt off my back. You know what that is? That's the doctrine of demons. He thought, well, because I'm a good old guy, because I'd help somebody out in trouble, surely God will let me into heaven, right? I'd give somebody the shirt off my back. No thought of his sin. No thought of his separation from God. Just his idea that if my good kind of outweighs my bad, if I'm a good old guy, surely God will let me into heaven. That is demonic doctrine straight from hell. That's what he's saying here. You're buying into the elementary principles of this world. That's what you're doing. You're going back to, to the gods who are really not gods. They're demons. That's what he is saying. His point is, if you are trying to save yourself, and this may apply to some in this room this morning, if you are trying to save yourself, Satan's got you right where he wants you. Because you can't do it. And I can't do it. We're all imperfect sinners who have rebelled against a holy God and deserve His punishment. The only way to be right with God, the only way to be saved is for our sin to be dealt with. If you think you can get you to heaven because you're a good old guy or a good old girl, Satan's got you right where he wants you. Now Paul's applying this idea of slavery to religion to Jews and Gentiles in the church. He's saying if you're a Jew and you're going back to the law to try and find acceptance with God, you're falling right into Satan's trap. Look in verse 3, he's talking to Jews, because there were some Jews in the churches in Galatia. He says, in the same way we also, he was a Jew, we also, us Jews, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We thought our external adherence to the law could make us right with God, give us favor and acceptance with God, even though our heart was a mess. We thought that if we did all the right things, that God would surely save us or accept us. Now, when he mentions there the elementary principles of the world, he's not talking about the law, because he says principles of the world. These are worldly ideas, the fact that you can save yourself. It's not that the law was demonic, it was a guardian. It was the idea that the law could save that was demonic. You hear what I just said? The law is good, it says in Romans 7. It's, it's righteous and perfect. It's God's law. The law is not demonic, but the idea that the law can save you if you keep it good enough, that's demonic. And that's how Satan 
twisted things in the Jewish mindset. It was a misunderstanding and misuse of the law. Trusting in the law is hopeless because we are too weak to keep it perfectly. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. John Stott writes this. I thought it was a great statement. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. We talked about that last week. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his dupes into supposing that from its fearful bondage there is no escape. Here's what he's saying. If you think your performance saves you, you're just going around and around and around and around, going in circles, trying to do the best you can, knowing you fall short, but, but still trying. But there's no hope, there's no peace, there's no rest. Satan's got you right where he wants you. We used to think that our performance, uh, according to the law, could save us. But he's also talking to Gentiles. Look in verse 8 through 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, the Gentiles, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying, if you're a Gentile and you think keeping the Jewish law is necessary, then you're really no better off than in the days you were a pagan, worshiping false gods who were really demons. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying Jews and Gentiles, apart from Christ, are basically in the same boat. He's saying they're both works-based. The Jewish mindset that keeping the law could save you, the Gentile mindset that your pagan religion could, could appease the, the gods you believed in. He said, they're, they're, they're all works-based. They're the same thing. It's demonic. It's satanic. Satan's got you right where he wants you. And you know what separates biblical Christianity from every other world religion and cult and worldview? Grace. Every other religion says, i got to do something. I've got to make myself acceptable to my God. Biblical Christianity says you can't make yourself acceptable. Your sin must be washed away. And because God loves you, there is grace, there is a gift available to forgive you and to reconcile you to God. You don't deserve it, but God gives it to you by grace. That's what separates biblical Christianity from every other other religion, all other religions, you name it, they're all works-based. Every one of them. They're all works-based. Can I tell you this? Trusting in your religious practice is an unsatisfying way to live. Because, listen, how do you know if you've ever done enough? Can you ever have assurance if your salvation's up to you, can you ever have assurance that, that you're going to heaven or that you're going to be saved or you're right with your God? Well, listen, if your salvation's up to you, will you ever be able to rest? The answer is no. It's a miserable, unsatisfying way to live. I've had the opportunity to travel all over the world. I've been in uh, mosques and pagodas and Hindu temples. 
I've seen the world religions practicing their, their views, their ideas, their beliefs. And there's fervency. There's sincerity. But it's a fervency and sincerity driven by desperation. Because these folks are desperate to appease the gods they believe in. And they're fearful that they're not doing enough. And so they go through the religious motions over and over and over and over and over again. But I don't want you to think that that this idea just applies to, to Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists. It applies to the Bible Belt. Where there are people who think, you know what, I'm a good neighbor. I never killed anybody. I take care of my family. I give somebody the shirt off my back. Surely I'm good enough to go to heaven, right? That is works-based religion. And it's hopeless. And it's an unsatisfying way to live. And I want you to know today, there is a better way. There's a contrast here. The first reality we see is slaves. But there's a contrast between slaves and sons. Slaves and sons. Look what it says in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, God made a way for us to become his children. That's what the word adoption means. God took people who were not his children. And by the way, we're not all children of God. Apart from Christ, no one's a child of God. If you hear a preacher or teacher or politician or media personality or movie star or athletic Star, if you hear someone say we're all God's children, that is not true. You know what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8? He said, you're children of your father, the devil. How's that for plain talk? We're not all children of God apart from Christ. Only in Christ do we become children of God. Do we experience Adoption. God made a way for us to become his children. How did God do it? Look what it says there in verse 4. He's saying you were enslaved. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, aren't you glad for the buts of the Bible? But, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. How did God make a way for us to be adopted? First of all, God sent. God sent. A couple things I want you to see here. First of all, God sent at the right time. It says there in verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son. What's meant by that phrase, the fullness of time? Well, basically, that's an answer we only find in the sovereign heart of God. He's the one that, that truly knows what that means or why the time was full when He sent Jesus Christ. But we can look back at human history Uh, through the lens of history, through the lens of Scripture, and and maybe try to 
understand why the time that God sent Jesus was a, a, a fullness of time. It, it was a moment, uh, a, a, a right moment to send his son in the first century. You know, when Jesus came to this earth, born of the Virgin Mary, he was born in the Roman Empire. And we know historically that in the Roman Empire, there were good roads. The Romans built roads like no one else before them. They spent a lot of money. They had architectural know-how. And they built good, solid roads. There, listen, there are still remnants of first century Roman roads today that you can go look at. They still hold up. Amazing. Amazing. Not only were there good roads in the first century, there was what's called the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. Roman laws protected the citizens, and Roman soldiers protected the peace. And, and there was a, a, a degree of peace over a large area of land that had never been experienced before by humanity to that degree. There were some common languages that brought people from very different backgrounds Together. Latin and Greek were predominant in that day. And if you spoke a language differently from somebody else on the other side of the empire, chances are you could communicate through Latin or Greek. You could find common ground and, and, and communicate with someone. And so when you look at that, good roads, a, a basic overarching Pax Romana peace, and some common trade languages, the, listen to me, the time was ripe for an important message to spread like wildfire. And maybe that's what it means when it says, in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. Jesus came, he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. He became sin for us. He took the wrath of God in our place. He died on the cross. He was buried and early on the third day. He rose from the grave and then he told his followers before he ascended to heaven, go and make disciples of all the nations. And guess what? There were good roads to go on. There were common languages to share in. There was a peace that could protect these messengers as they went. So what do we learn? We learned that God sent Jesus at the exact right time. Secondly, he sent the right person. Look what it says there in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son... Born of woman, born under the law. Notice there, his son, that means he's truly and fully God, the son of God. Same nature and essence as God, the second person of the Godhead. But notice there, his son was born of woman. The Holy Spirit worked by his power to conceive Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary... As the second person of the Godhead took on human flesh that happened in Mary's womb. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And when Jesus Christ was born, he was born fully God, the Son of God, left heaven, came to earth. And fully human, the Son of Mary. And I submit to you this morning that not only did God send at the right time, he sent the right person. Because, listen to me, 
only one who is fully God and fully human could take the place of sinful humans like me and pay the infinite price that I deserve to pay. Only infinite God can pay the infinite price. Only one who's fully human could die in my place. And that's who Jesus was and is. The God-man. So he sent at the right time and he sent the right person. God sent. That's one of the ways he brought about the opportunity for you and I to be adopted. Secondly, not only did God send, God frees. Look in verse 5. God frees. God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus Christ never failed when it came to the law. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned. We've all disobeyed God's law. Not Jesus. As the God-man on this earth, listen to me, he completely fulfilled the law of God. He never sinned. He did everything right. So that when he grants salvation to those who believe in him, not only does his shed blood provide forgiveness for the sinner, he gives them his righteous standing as a gift. Why? Born under the law, he completely kept the law. Why? Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. The one who was perfect under the law died for those who are not perfect under the law, you and I. He died for us. And he paid the price that we deserve to pay. He took our punishment so we could be redeemed. That word means to be set free through the payment of a price. Jesus paid it all so you and I could go free. Now here's the question. Free from what? What are we free from? Well, he sets us free from trying to save ourselves. Amen? There may be a time in your life where you tried to save yourself. How did that go? It's a miserable way to live, right? But he frees us from trying to save ourselves, from trying to keep the law and be good enough to go to heaven when we can't do it. And he also sets us free by taking the curse we deserve for falling short of that perfection. Galatians 3.13, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. That Jesus became a curse for us. He took our punishment so that you and I could be forgiven. We no longer have to fear God's wrath because Jesus took it all. So we are free. Free from trying to keep the law. Free from trying to save ourselves. Free from the penalty that we deserve. Free from the power of sin over our lives. We have been set free. So God sent and God frees so that, look at the next phrase, God adopts. God adopts. Notice the freedom here is for a reason. Verse 5. Sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that, statement of purpose, so that we might receive adoption of sons. When we were in bondage, we could not be sons. When we were under the curse of sin and the law, we were under God's wrath deserving his punishment. We were not forgiven of our sins. We were, we were in bondage. We couldn't be sons. But now that our sins have been washed away, now that we've been reconciled to God, we are free to be adopted. We can be his children. God adopts. Now that word there in verse 5, adoption, is an interesting word. It's, it's huiothesia. It's a, a compound Greek word 
The word huio is the word for son, and thasia means to place. So the, the word adoption literally means to place as a son. So when you and I were saved, at the moment of conversion... There's something happening, a transaction taking place that you and I really knew nothing about. But at the moment we were saved, we were placed as sons and daughters in the family of God. Adopted. That's what that word means. Timothy George writes, Adoption refers to the present status of sonship according to all believers who through the new birth have become heirs with Christ of the Abrahamic promise. Now let me tell you some things that are true of you and true of me if we've been adopted. Number one, if you are adopted, you have a great inheritance. Look in verse 7. He says, so you are no longer a slave if you're saved, if you're in Christ. You're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Just like the child who had a guardian over them until the father would give them their inheritance. Can you imagine the joy when that day came? And as a son, they receive the full inheritance from their father. That's the picture here. When you were saved, you became a child of God, and you received the full inheritance God has for you. Now, so wait, what's the inheritance? We could go on and on for weeks about the inheritance. I believe the best summary of the inheritance is found in Ephesians 1.3 when it says, In Christ, you and I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. The inheritance is everything God has for you in Christ. Everything. Forgiveness, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, heaven. It's all yours in Christ. He's poured out his inheritance on you. Lo and Ida, when speaking of this word adoption, say that it means to formally and legally declare that someone who is not one's own child is henceforth to be treated and cared for as one's own child, including complete rights of inheritance. Under Roman law, listen to me, under Roman law, if a family adopted a child, that child had the same rights to the inheritance as the biological children. Period. That's Roman law. And that helps us to understand Romans 8, 17 when it says that we are, you and I, listen to this, are fellow heirs with Christ. We are, and this is grace, we don't deserve it, but we are entitled to the same inheritance of blessing that God has for his own dear son, Jesus Christ. Equal ground when it comes to inheritance. Everything good that God has for you, He gives you through Christ. Also, if you're adopted, not only do you have a great inheritance, but if you're adopted, you will always be adopted. Look in verse 5. Came to redeem us, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive, as a gift, receive adoption as sons. Now again, under Roman law, now listen to me, this is important, under Roman law, And that's how the Galatians would have understood adoption. Under Roman law, an adoption could not be rescinded. As a matter of fact, did you know under Roman law, you could disown one of your own biological children if you got mad enough? You could say, change your name, you're not one of mine anymore. 
But you could not do that to an adopted child. It, it could not be rescinded. So what does it mean that you and I are adopted as sons? It means that once we're adopted, we're, we're always adopted. It'll never, that status will never change. We'll always be the children of God. Third, if you are adopted, you have a personal relationship with God. Look in verse 7. You're no longer a slave. You're not trying to keep the law to save you. No longer under a guardian. But you're a son. If a son, then an heir through God. A son of God. Now let that sink in just for a moment. If you are a Christian, if you are a, a, a follower of Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God himself. Think about that. Let, let the weight of that glorious reality settle in for a moment. A child of God. Now, verse 6 talks about how we experience that, that adoption. What it means to experience being a child of God. I'm going to talk about that next week. I didn't have time this week. Number, uh, verse number 6 stands all alone. We're going to dig, dig, dig next week into verse 6. It is glorious. You want to be back next week. It's glorious. And we'll talk about how you experience God as Father, what that looks like in your day-to-day life. But, but for this morning, just, just understand that in Christ, you are a child of Almighty God. And I love this quote from Wayne Grudem. He writes, God could have given us justification without the privileges of adoption into his family. For he could have forgiven our sins and given us right legal standing before him without making us his children. It is important to realize this because it helps us to recognize how great our privilege is in adoption. Adoption has to do, here's what I want you to see, with our relationship with God as our Father. Listen, biblical Christianity is not religious ritual, it's not empty Ritual, it's a relationship with God. He's your father. Adoption has to do with our relationship with God as our father. And in adoption, we are given many of the greatest blessings that we will know for all eternity. When we begin to realize the excellence of these blessings, and when we appreciate that God has no obligation to give any of them to us, then we will be able to exclaim with the Apostle John, See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Do you understand the love of God in that He would make you His child? In that He would make me His child and and we don't deserve it? What amazing love. And maybe you, you came to church this morning and, and you're sitting in a seat and you're listening to the sermon and, and you walked in wondering, does God really love me? And you see in the text, God's saying, I'll adopt you if you just receive my gift through my son Jesus Christ. I'll adopt you. I'll make you my child. I would call that love. How about you? There's a book out by an author named Ted Cluck. He's also a 
professor at Union University. But he and his family took the journey of adoption, adopting a child, bringing that child into their family. And the name of the book is this. Hello, I love you. And he's dealing with the idea that that you take a child for the very first time you've met them when you've gone through the adoption process. And even though you haven't been around them, you instantly love them. In fact, your love was on display before you took them in your arms, wasn't it? You see, we have several families in our church, many families in our church that have gone through the process of adoption. And I always love hearing the stories of those adoptions. And, and, And usually it goes something like this. There's the decision the family makes to adopt. That's a big decision. There's the seeking out of the right child for their family, the right timing and and, and being matched up with that child. There's the, and this is the part that's so inspiring to see families walk through this. There's the doing of everything necessary to make the adoption happen on their end. And these parents are filling out paperwork and and, and, and there's... there's, there's, uh, money involved and and it's rigorous and it's demanding and it's disheartening sometimes because the delay is so long but these parents do everything they need to do to provide a new family for a child who needs one and then there's that that moment overseas or in a domestic situation where there's a legal declaration made for someone in authority to say, this child is yours. And oh, the love, the heart-bursting love that these parents have for that new addition to their family. It is amazing love on display. And isn't that a picture of the gospel? It's, a, it's a, not a perfect, but a, a faint reflection of how much God loves us. That he would choose to adopt. And that he would come seeking us when we weren't seeking him. And then he would do everything necessary pave the way for sinners like me to become his children. I would call that amazing love. How about you? And that's the point of this text. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. And again, we'll get back to this next week because we don't want to leave out verse 6. Be back next week. Here's the point. Eternal and abundant life is found in a relationship with God as Father, not in empty religious practice. People are looking for satisfaction, they're looking for life, they're looking for purpose, they're looking for fulfillment, they're looking for joy. It'll never be found apart from a personal relationship with God. That's where abundant and eternal life is found, not in empty religious practice. And listen to me. There's only one way to know for sure that God's your Father. Jesus said it like this, John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father 
No one can come to the Father. No one can be adopted except through me. That's what Jesus said. So maybe you're here this morning. And maybe you've been going through the motions of religion, denominational affiliation. Or maybe it's just morality. You think, well, I think I'm good enough to go to heaven when I die. And you're in the cul-de-sac of works-based religion. You're just running in circles. There's a better way. The contrast here is between slaves, listen, and sons. Which will it be for you?